death. Omne bonum adeo, imperfectum a diabolo, Paracelsus. Chapter 8 of Franz Hartmann's Magic White and Black. Consciousness is knowledge and life. Unconsciousness is ignorance and death. If we are conscious of the existence of a thing, a relation exists between ourselves and that thing. If we are unconscious of its existence, neither we nor that object ceases to exist, but there is no relation between us. As soon as we begin to realize that relation, the character of the object perceived in the sphere of our mind, becomes a part of our mental constitution, and we begin to live in relation to it. We then possess it in our consciousness. If we lose its possession, we may regain it by the power of recollection and memory. To know an object is to live relatively to it. To forget it is to die in relation to it. Unconsciousness, ignorance, and death are therefore synonymous terms, and every one is dead in proportion as he is ignorant. If he is ignorant of the fact, he is dead relatively to it, although he may be fully alive in many other aspects. We cannot be conscious of everything at once, and therefore, as our impressions and thoughts change, our consciousness in relation to certain things change, and we continually die relatively to some things and begin to live relatively to others. Relative death and unconsciousness occurs every moment, and we are not aware of its occurrence. We meet hundreds of corpses in the streets, which are entirely dead and unconscious in regard to certain things of which we are conscious, and relatively to which we are alive. And we may be dead in regard to many things to which others are alive and conscious. Only simultaneously occurring omniscience in regard to everything that exists would be absolute life, without any admixture of death." Each principle in man has a certain sphere of consciousness, and its perceptions can only extend to the limits of that sphere. Each is dead to such modes of activity as are in no relation with it. Minerals are unconscious of the action of intelligence, but not the attraction of earth. Spirit is dead to earthly attraction, but not to spiritual principles. If we can change the mode of activity in a form, we call into existence a new state of consciousness because we establish new relations of a different order. The old activity then dies and a new one begins to live. If the energy which we are now using for the purpose of digesting food, for performing intellectual labor and for enjoying sensual pleasures, were used for the purpose of developing spirituality, we would be in a comparatively short time rewarded for our labor by becoming superior beings, of a state so far above our present condition that we can at present not even conceive of it. In the constitution of average man, life is especially active in the animal body, and he clings to the life of that body as if it were the only possible mode of existence. He knows of no other mode of life and is afraid to die. A person whose center of life and consciousness is in his astral body will be conscious of another existence, and his physical body will be only so far of value to him as by its instrumentality he may act on the physical plane. Physical death is a continuation of the activity of life in higher principles. If we, by some occult process, could concentrate all our life into our higher principles before our body ceases to live, 
we might step in advance of death and live independent of our physical body. Such a transfer of life and consciousness is not beyond possibility. It has been accomplished by some and will be accomplished by others. The material elements of the physical body are continually subject to elimination and renewal. By restricting the renewal of these elements within the limits of the utmost necessity and at the same time withdrawing our consciousness from the exterior and concentrating it upon the interior plane, we may, in course of time, change the compound parts of the physical body into more ethereal ones, until its physical molecules become entirely replaced by finer elements belonging to the astral plane when its organization will require no more food from the physical plane and become invisible to the physical eye. It would, however, be absurd to suppose that immortality could be obtained by means of gymnastic exercises and semi-starvation and without an awakening of the inner life. If the divine life awakens in man, the grossly animal elements in his constitution will die and disappear without any external aid. No one would be willing to look upon such a change as death, and yet it would be nothing else but a mode of dying slow as far as the physical body is concerned, while at the same time it is a resurrection of the real man into a superior form of existence. Death, whether slow or quick, is nothing but a process of purification, by which the imperfect is eliminated and rendered unconscious. Nothing perishes but that which is not able to live. Principles cannot die, only their forms disappear. Only that which is perfect can remain without being changed. Truth, wisdom, justice, beauty, goodness, etc. cannot be changed. It is merely the forms in which they become manifest that can be destroyed. If all the wise men in the world were to die in one moment, the principle of wisdom would nevertheless exist and manifest itself in due time in other receptive forms. If love were to leave the hearts of all human beings, it would thereby not be annihilated. It would merely cease to exist relatively to men, and men would cease to live while love would continue to be. Eternal principles are self-existent, and therefore independent of forms, and not subject to change. But forms are changeable, and cannot continue without the presence of the principles whose instruments for manifestation they represent. The human body is an instrument for the manifestation of life. The soul is an instrument for the manifestation of spirit. If the life leaves the body and the latter begins to disintegrate, if the spirit leaves the soul, the latter begins to dissolve. A person in whom the spiritual principle has become entirely inactive is spiritually dead, although his body may be full of life and his soul full of animal desires. Such spiritless living corpses are often seen in fashionable society, as well as in the crowds where the vulgar assemble. A person in whom the principle of reason has become inactive is intellectually dead, although his body may be full of animal life. Lunatics are dead people, in whom only the non-intellectual or semi-intellectual principles continue to live. If the soul leaves the body, the latter dies, but the soul lives. If the soul dies, God continues to be. The soul, like the body is a compound organism composed of various elements. Some of these elements may be fit to receive the light of the spirit. Others are not fit to do so. 
If, therefore, a person during his earthly life has not purified his soul sufficiently so as to enter the spiritual state immediately after the death of the physical body, a separation of the pure and impure elements from the still impure remains must take place in the state after death. When the final separation is accomplished, the spiritual elements enter the spiritual state, which, in fact, they have never left, and the lower elements, which may or may not possess a certain remnant of consciousness of their own, remain in the lower plane, where they gradually disintegrate. If the organization of the physical body becomes impaired to such an extent that the principle of life cannot employ it any longer to serve as an instrument for its activity, it ceases to act. Death may begin at the head, the heart, or the lungs, but life lingers longest in the head, and it may still be active there to a certain extent after the body, to all exterior appearances, has become unconscious and ceased to live. The power of thought may continue for a time to work in its habitual manner, although sensation has ceased to exist in the nerves. This activity may even grow in intensity as the principles become disunited. And if the thought of the dying is intensely directed upon an absent friend, it may impress itself upon the consciousness of that friend, and perhaps cause him to see the apparition of the dying. At last, vitality leaves the brain, and the higher principles depart, carrying with them their proper activity, life and consciousness leaving behind an empty form, a mask, an illusion. There need not necessarily be any loss of consciousness in regard to the persons and things by which we may be surrounded. The only consciousness which necessarily ceases is that which refers to his personality of physical sensation, pain, weight, heat, and cold, hunger, and thirst, which may have affected the physical form. As his life departs from the brain, another state of consciousness may come into existence because he enters in relation to a different order of things. Quote, the principle, carrying memory, emerges from the brain and every event of the life which is ebbing away is reviewed by the mind. Picture after picture presents itself with living vividness before his consciousness, and he lives in a few minutes his whole life again. Persons in a state of drowning have experienced that state and regained their life. That impression which has been the strongest survives all the rest. The other impressions disappear to reappear again in the devachonic state. No man dies unconscious, whatever external appearances may seem to indicate to the contrary. Even a madman will have a moment at the time of his death when his intellect will be restored. Those who are present at such solemn moments should take care not to disturb. By outbursts of grief or otherwise, that process by which the soul beholds the effects of the past and lays the plan for its future experience. The process of the parting of the perisprit from the physical remains is described by a clairvoyant as follows. At first I saw a beautiful light of a pale blue color in which appeared a small egg-shaped substance about three feet above the head. It was not stationary but wavered to and fro like a balloon in the air. Gradually it elongated to the length of the body, the whole enveloped in a mist or smoke. I perceived a face corresponding in features to that which was so soon to be soulless, only brighter, more smooth, more beautiful, yet unfinished, with the same want of expression that we observe in a newborn infant. 
With every breath from the dying body, the ethereal form was added to and became more perfect. Presently the feet became defined, not side by side, as the dying man had placed himself, but one hanging below the other, and one knee bent as newborn infants would be in an accidental position. The body appeared to be enshrouded in a cloud-like mist. A countless host of other presences seemed to be near. When the whole was complete, all slowly passed out of sight. This ethereal body is the soul body, or perispri, of the person that died. It is not the spirit itself, but it may still be made luminous by the spirit, as it was during life. It may still contain the good and evil tendencies which it acquired during life. If man's spirit rises above the attractions of his lower self, his lower self would be unconscious and disintegrate. But if he clings to his animal nature with a great intensity of desire, a center of consciousness will become established therein, and its sense of personality may continue to exist for a while in his animal soul, even after the physical body is dead. The time during which an astral corpse may remain in this state before it is entirely dissolved depends on the density and strength of its elements. It may differ from a few hours or days to a great many years. Man is made up of a great many living elements or principles of which each one exists in its own individual state while they all receive their life from the spirit. When the spirit withdraws, they become separate. While each one may retain for a while its own particular life and consciousness in the same sense as a wheel, which is once set in motion, will continue to run after the force is exhausted, even if the original motive power is withdrawn. The astral remnant of a man is, therefore, not the man, but a part of his psychic organism, which may or may not be conscious that it exists and which may or may not be connected with the spiritual monad whose instrument it was during life. This Kama Loka state is the land of the shadows, the Hades of the ancient Greeks, and the purgatory of the Roman Catholic Church. Its inhabitants may or may not possess consciousness and intelligence, but the astral souls of Average honest men and women possess no intelligence of their own. They can, however, be made to act intelligently by the power of the elementals. Paracelsus says, quote, Men and women die every day whose souls during their lives have been subject to the influence and guidance of elementals. How much easier will it be for such elementals to influence the sidereal bodies of such persons and to make them act as they please after their souls have lost the protection which their physical bodies afforded? They may use these soul bodies to move physical objects from place to place, to carry such objects from distant countries, and to perform other feats of a similar kind that may appear miraculous to the uninitiated. The state of consciousness of the animal soul after the physical form has become unconscious and lifeless may, therefore, differ widely in different persons, according to the conditions that have been established during its connection to the body. The soul of an average person in Kama Loka, with only moderate selfish desires, is not conscious and intelligent enough to know that its physical body has died, and that it is itself undergoing the process of disintegration. But the soul of a person whose whole consciousness was intensely centered in self may be conscious and intelligent enough to remember its past life and feel its impending fate. 
seeking to prolong its existence, it may cling for protection to the organism of some living being and thereby cause an obsession. Not only weak-minded human beings, but also animals may be subject to such an obsession. To a body without sensation or consciousness, it can make no difference under what conditions it may continue to exist or perish, because it cannot realize its existence, but to a soul in which the spark of divine intelligence has kindled consciousness and sensation, its surrounding conditions will be of importance, because it can realize them more or less fully according to the degree of its consciousness." Such surroundings in the state after death each man creates for himself during life by his thoughts, his words, and his acts. Man is creating all his life the condition wherein he will live in the hereafter. Thought is material and solid to those that live on the plane of thought. Even on the physical plane every form that exists is a materialized thought, grown or made into a form. The world of the souls is a world in which thought itself appears material and solid to those who exist in that world. Man is a center from which continually thought is evolved and crystallizes into forms in that world. His thoughts are things that have life and form and tenacity, real entities solid and more enduring than the forms of the physical plane. Good thoughts are light and rise above us, but evil thoughts are heavy and sink. The world below us, to which they sink, is the sphere of the grossest, most diseased and sensual thoughts evolved by evil-disposed and ignorant men. It is a world still more material and solid to its inhabitants than ours is to us. It is the inhabitation of man-created personal deities, devils, and monstrosities invented by the morbid imagination of man. They are only the products of thought, but nevertheless they are real and substantial to those who live among them and realize their existence. The myths of hell and purgatory are based on ill-understood facts. Hells exist, but man is himself their creator. Brutal man creates monsters by the working of his diseased imagination during life. Disembodied man will be attracted to his creations. There are few persons who are not subject to evil thoughts. Such thoughts are the reflex of the lurid light from the region of evil, but they cannot take form unless we give them form by dwelling on them and feeding them with the substance taken from our own mind. Love is the life of the good. Malice the life of the evil. An evil thought evolved unconsciously is an illusion without life. An evil thought brought into existence with malice becomes malicious and living. If it is embodied in an act, a new devil will be born into the world. The horrors of hell exist only for those who have been conscious, voluntary, and malicious collaborators in peopling it with the products of their fancy. The beauties of heaven are only realized by him who has created a heaven within himself during his life. Pain is only caused if a being exists under abnormal conditions. Devils do not suffer in hell because they are there in their own natural element. They would suffer if they had to enter in heaven. They belong to the darkness and suffer in the presence of light. 
A man suffers if his head is kept under water. A fish suffers if he is taken out of the water. A cruel and vicious person may enjoy sights which will horrify others, but if he still has some good elements within his organization, they will suffer until they have become separated from evil. If there are spiritual powers for good, there must be spiritual powers for evil, for evil is merely perverted good. If man is a temple of God, he may likewise be a residence for the devil. If man has a spirit, that spirit can enter into relations with either of the two states. But for a spiritless man, an animal, neither God nor the devil has any use. Nor can the highest Diane Kahan of evil exert any power over a man unless that man has already a devil in him. We can only be conscious of the existence of things if a relation exists between ourselves and the things. A person who has created nothing during life that could have established a relationship with his immortal self will have nothing immortal with which to enter into relationship after death. If his whole attention is taken up by his physical wants, the sphere of his consciousness during life will be confined to those material wants. When he leaves his material habitation, material wants will no longer exist for him, and his consciousness of them ceases. Having created nothing in his soul that can enter into relation with spirit, his soul will neither lose that which it never possessed, nor gain that which it never desired, but remain blank." If we hire a priest or a professor to do our thinking for us, we create no spiritual aspirations or living thoughts for ourselves. If we are contented to believe the opinions of others, we have no knowledge of our own. The artificial knowledge which has thus been created by the reflection of the thought of others on the mirror of the individual mind has no power of penetration. Those minds which have been fed on illusions will have no substance after the illusions have passed away. The only knowledge which can remain with the spirit is that which it knows itself. Every cause is followed by an effect. Illusions that have been created in the mind are forces that must become exhausted before they can die. They will continue to act in the subjective state and produce other illusions by the laws of harmony that govern the association of ideas, and all illusions will end in the sphere to which they belong. Selfish desires will end in the sphere of self. Unselfish aspirations and thoughts will bring their own rewards if they were good, and their own punishment if they were evil. Life is a continual death or exchange of conditions under which we exist. Our desires for things change as the conditions under which we exist assume a different character. Before we are born, our state of life depends on the state of the mother's womb. But having been born into the world, we care nothing more for the placenta and membranes that furnished us with nutriment and life during our fetal existence. Being infants, our interests are centered upon the breasts of the mother, but these breasts are forgotten after we need them no more. Things which absorbed the whole of our consciousness during our youth are discarded as we grow older. If we throw off the physical body and desire for that which was attracted to it and important for its existence is thrown off with it, or perishes soon afterwards. 
But if the soul again approaches the material plane, and through the influences of mediumship again enters into relationship with it, the old consciousness and the old desires that had gone to sleep reawaken, and its physical sensations return. If the influence of the medium is withdrawn, it relapses in its state of stupor or unconsciousness. There are innumerable varieties of conditions and possibilities in the world of spirit and on the astral plane, as there are upon the physical plane. If the mind begins to investigate these things separately and without understanding the fundamental laws of nature upon which such phenomena are based, it may as well despair of ever being able to form a correct conception of them. If a botanist were to examine separately each one of the thousands of leaves of a large tree for the purpose of finding out the true nature of the latter, he would never arrive at the end. But if he once knows the tree as a whole, the color and shape of the individual leaves will be easily known. Likewise, if we once arrive at a correct conception of the spiritual nature of man, it will be easy to follow the various ramifications of the one universal law. There is no death for that which is perfect, but the imperfect must perish sooner or later. So-called death is simply a process of elimination of that which is useless. In this sense, we all are continually dying every day, and even wishing to die, because every reasonable person desires to get rid of his imperfections and their consequences and the sufferings which they cause. No one is afraid to lose that which he does not want, and if he clings to that which is useless, it is because he is unconscious and ignorant of that which is useful. In such a case as he is already partly dead to that which is good, and must come to life and learn to realize that which is useful by dying to that which is usefulness. This is the so-called mystic death by which the enlightened comes to life, which involves the unconsciousness of worthless and earthly desires and passions, and establishes a consciousness of that which is immortal and true. The reason why men and women are sometimes afraid to die is because they mistake the low for the high, and prefer material illusions to spiritual truths. There is no death for the perfect, and he who is imperfect must throw away his imperfectness, so that that which is perfect in him may become conscious and live. This mystic death is recommended by the wise as being the supreme remedy against real death. This mystic death is identical with spiritual regeneration. Hermes Trismegistus says, Happy is he whose vices die before him. And the great teacher Thomas de Kempis writes, Learn to die now to the world, to the attractions of matter, so that you may begin to live with Christ. A person whose vices have died during his earthly life does not need to die again during his life as a soul. His sidereal body will dissolve like a silver cloud, being unconscious of any desires for that which is low, and his spirit will be fully conscious of that which is beautiful, harmonious, and true. But he whose conscience is centered in the passions that have raged in his soul during life can realize nothing higher than that which was the highest to him during his life, and cannot gain any other consciousness by the process of death. Physical death is no gain. He cannot give us that which we do not already possess. Unconsciousness cannot confer consciousness. Ignorance cannot give knowledge. 
By the mystic death, we arrive at life and consciousness, knowledge and happiness, because the awakening of the higher elements to life implies the death of that which is useless and low. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision availeth but a new creature. Galatians 6.15 There are esprits, souffrance, or suffering souls, they are the revenants, or restants, the astral bodies of victims of premature death, whose physical forms have perished before their spirit became ripe enough to separate from the soul. They remain with the attraction of the earth until the time arrives that should have been the termination of their physical lives according to the law of their karma. They are under normal conditions, not fully conscious of the conditions in which they exist, but they may be temporarily stimulated into life by the influence of mediumship. Then will their half-forgotten desires and memories return and cause them to suffer. To rouse such existences from their stupor into the realization of pain for the purpose of gratifying idle curiosity is cruel and may be very injurious to such souls, as it may reawaken their thirst for life and for the gratification of earthly desires. The soul of the sane suicide, however, or that of a malicious person, may be fully conscious and realize the situation in which it is placed. Such existences may wander about earth clinging to the material life, and vainly trying to escape the dissolution by which they are threatened. Partly bereft of reason and following their animal instincts, they may become incubi and succubi, vampires, stealing life from the living to prolong their own existence, regardless of the fate of their victims. The soul bodies of the dead may be either unconsciously or consciously attracted to mediums for the purpose of communicating with the living. By using the astral emanations of the medium, they may become materialized and be rendered visible and tangible and appear like the deceased person himself. But if a deceased person was in possession of high aspirations and virtues, his soul corpse would not actually be the actual entity which it represents, although it may act in every respect as the person whose mask it wears. If we blow into a trumpet, it will give the sound of a trumpet and no other. The soul corpse of a good person, if infused artificially with life, will produce the thoughts it used to produce during life. But there will be no more of the identity of that person in the corpse than there is the identity of a friend in the wire of a telephone if we recognize his voice and manner of expression through such a wire. The revelations made by such spirits are only the echoes of their former thoughts or of thoughts impressed upon them by the living as a mirror reflects the faces of those that stand before it. They do not give us a true description of the spirit's condition in the world of souls, because he is himself ignorant of that condition. At the time when Plato was living, such souls returned giving descriptions of Hades and of the deities that were believed to exist in that place. At present day, the souls of Roman Catholics will return and ask for masses, to be relieved from purgatory, while the Protestants refused to be benefited by the ceremonies of the Catholic Church. The souls of dead Hindus ask sometimes for the performance of sacrifices to their gods, and every spirit appears to be domineered by those ideas in which he believed during his life. 
The discrepancy in their reports prove that their tales are usually only the products of the imagination of the irrational soul. If man has a spirit, that spirit must be immortal. Having become conscious in man, it cannot become unconscious again, because it is self-existent and independent of all conditions but those which it creates itself. The self-consciousness of the I Am is indestructible, because it exists in the absolute eternal One. The more the lower elements cling to that principle in which absolute consciousness rests, the more will they partake of its state and be rendered conscious and immortal. The object of a man's life is to become conscious that he is, not an elusive personal form, but an impersonal, immortal reality. The object of his existence is to render the unconscious spirit conscious and the mortal soul immortal. The object of death is to release that which is conscious from that which is unconscious and to free the immortal from the bonds of ignorance and of matter. The tree of life grows and produces a seed, and this seed may have to be planted again to grow into a tree and produce another seed, and this process may have to be repeated over and over again, until at last the spiritual consciousness slumbering in the seed awakens to immortal life. Again and again may the soul be forced by the law of evolution to incarnate into flesh. Unconscious of any relation to personalities, it will be attracted to such conditions as may be best suited for its further development, as its karma decides. It will be attracted to overshadow a man whose mortal and intellectual tendencies and qualities correspond to its own, careless whether it enters the world as a newborn babe through the door of the hut of a beggar or through the palace of a king. It does not care for personal conditions because it is unconscious of its own state. Thus a man that reigned as a king in a former incarnation may be reborn as a beggar, if his character was that of a beggar, and a liberal beggar may create as his future successor a king, or a being of noble birth. Both act without freedom of choice at the time of their visit to the earth, following unconsciously their karma. But the adept whose spiritual consciousness is awake will be his own master. He has grown above the sense of personality and thereby gained immortal consciousness during his earthly life. He has thrown away his lower self and death cannot rob him of that which he no longer possesses and to which he no longer attaches value. Being conscious of his existence and of the conditions under which he exists, he may follow his own choice in the selection of a body, if he chooses to reincarnate, either for the benefit of humanity or for his own progression. Having entirely overcome the attractions of earth, he is truly free. He is dead and unconscious to all earthly temptations, but conscious of the highest happiness attainable by man. The delusion of the senses can fashion for him no other tabernacle to imprison his soul, and before him lies open the road to eternal rest in nirvana. If a person has once attained a certain amount of spiritual knowledge, he will, if it is necessary for him to reincarnate again, not need to follow the blind law of attraction but he will be able to choose the body and the conditions most suitable to him. He may then reincarnate himself in the body of a child or in the body of a grown person whose soul has been separated by disease or accident from the body, and the latter may thus be brought 
to life again if no vital organ is too seriously injured to carry on the functions of life again. Cases are known in which a certain person apparently died and finally came to life again, when from that time he appeared to be an entirely different man. And now, a word from our sponsors. While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do, since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week, or six dollars a month, or fifty for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. So, for instance, he may have died as a ruffian, and after his recovery become suddenly like a saint, so that such a sudden change appeared inexplicable on any other theory than that an entirely different character had taken possession of his body. Such people may, after their recovery takes place, speak a language they never learned, talk familiarly of things they never saw, call people by their names of which they never heard, know all about places where their physical bodies never have been, etc., etc. If phenomena could prove anything, such occurrences might go to prove the theory of the reincarnation of living adepts. To die in the real meaning of the term, is to become unconscious in relation to certain things. If we become unconscious of a lower state, and thereby become unconscious of a higher existence, such a change cannot properly be called death. If we become unconscious of a higher condition, and thereby enter a lower one, such a change is followed by degradation, and therefore degradation is the only possible death, because death in the absolute does not exist. Degradation takes place if a human faculty is employed for a lower purpose than that for which it was by nature intended. Degradation of the most vulgar, the lowest material type, takes place if the organs of the physical body are used for villainous purposes, and disease, atrophy, and death are the common result. A higher and still more detrimental and lasting degradation takes place if the intellectual faculties are habitually used for selfish and degrading purposes. In such cases, the intellect that ought to serve as a basis for spiritual aspirations becomes merged with matter. His spiritual consciousness ceases to exist. In other words, his consciousness is entirely bound down to the plane of personality and selfishness and becomes inactive in the region of impersonality and life. The lowest and most enduring degradation takes place if man, having reached a state in which his personality has, to a certain extent, been absorbed by his impersonal I, degrades his spiritual self by employing the powers which such an amalgamation confers for villainous purposes of a low character. Such are the practices of black magic. A person who, for want of any better understanding, employs his intellectual faculties for his own selfish purposes, regardless of the principle of justice, is not necessarily a villain, but simply ignorant of his own interests. Such persons cannot die spiritually because they have not yet come spiritually to life. The murderer may commit a murder to save himself from being discovered of some crime, and not for the purpose of robbing another person of life. 
A thief may steal a purse for the purpose of enriching himself and not for the purpose of rendering another man poor. Such acts are the result of ignorance, and ignorance has no permanent life. Persons usually act evil for selfish purposes, and not for the pure love of evil. Such acts are the result of personal feelings, and personal feelings cease to exist when the personality to which they belong ceases to exist. Such a personal existence ceases when his life on the physical plane, or in Kama Loka, ceases to act. The higher, immortal, and impersonal I of the man is neither a gainer nor loser on such an occasion. It remains the same as it was before the compound of forces representing the late personality was born. The real villain, however, is he who performs evil for the love of evil without personal considerations. A person who is no more influenced by his sense of personality and has thereby gained spiritual life and powers is a magician. Those who employ such powers for the purposes of evil have been called black magicians or brothers of the shadow. In the same sense as those who employ their spiritual powers for good purposes have been called brothers of light. The white magician is a spiritual power for good. The real black magician is a living power of evil attached to a personality that performs evil instinctively and for the love of evil itself. This power of evil may kill the man or the animal that never offended it, and by whose death it has nothing to gain, destroys for the love of destruction, causes suffering without expecting any benefit for itself, robs to throw away the spoils, revels in torture and death. Such a person calls to life an impersonal evil power, which is a part of himself, and which continues to exist after his personality ceases to exist on the physical plane. Many incarnations may be needed before such a power will come into existence and become strong, but when it once lives it will perish as slow as it grew. Angels as well as devils are born into the world, and children with villainous propensities and malicious characters are not very rare. They may be the product of such forces as in former incarnations have developed a tendency for evil, without becoming fixed in evil by developing any spiritual consciousness in the direction of evil. Every power which may be employed for a good purpose may also be used for an evil purpose. If we can, by magnetism, decrease the rapidity of the pulse of a fever patient, we may also decrease it to such an extent that the subject ceases to live. If we can force a person by our will to perform a good act, we may also force him to commit a crime. It appears to be unnecessary to enter into details in regard to the practices of black magic and sorcery. It is more noble and useful to study how we can benefit mankind than to satisfy our curiosity in regard to the powers for evil. To show to what aberrations of mind a craving for the power of working black magic may lead, it may be mentioned that the would-be black magician Gilles de Ray, Maréchal of France, and better known as Bluebeard, who was executed for his crimes at Nantes, killed and tortured to death during a few years not less than 160 women and children for the purpose of practicing necromancy and black magic. The white magician delights in doing good. The servant of the black arts revels in cruelty and crime. 
The former cooperates with the divine spirit of wisdom, the latter cooperates with the animal and semi-intellectual forces of nature. The former will be exalted in God and united with him. The latter will ultimately be absorbed by the devils with which he has associated and which he called to his aid. To raise our consciousness into the spiritual plane is to live. To let it sink to a lower level is to die. The natural orders of the universe is that the high should elevate the low. But if the high is made to serve the low, the high will be degraded. Everywhere in the workshop of nature, the high acts upon the low by the power of the highest. The highest itself cannot be degraded. Truth itself cannot be turned into falsehood. It can only be rejected and denied. Reason itself cannot be rendered foolish. It can only be refused obedience. The universal and impersonal cannot itself become limited. It can only come into contact with such personalities as are able to approach it. The highest does not suffer by breaking its connection with the low. The low alone suffers and dies. The personal and real is everywhere, and manifests itself in the consciousness of man. Man's consciousness rotates between the two poles of good and evil, of spirit and matter. The attraction from below may be equal to the attraction from above. The omnipresent influence of the great spiritual sun renders him strong to overcome the attraction of matter and assists him to become victorious out of the struggle with evil. Man is not entirely free as long as he is not in possession of perfect knowledge, which means of a perfect consciousness of the truth. But he is free to allow himself to be attracted by a love for the truth or to repulse it. His spiritual aspirations may be in cooperation with the principle of truth, or he may sever his connection with it and sell his inherited rights to immortality, like the biblical Esau, for a comparatively worthless mess of pottage. The centaur, in his nature, whose lower principles are animal, while the upper parts are possessed of intellect, may carry away his spiritual aspirations and lull them into unconsciousness by the music of its illusions. Bodies may be comparatively long-lived, and some souls compared with others may be very enduring, but there is nothing permanent but the consciousness of love and consciousness of hate. Love is light, and hate is darkness, and in the end love will conquer hate because darkness cannot destroy light, and wherever light penetrates into darkness, there will love conquer, and hate and darkness will disappear. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with 
the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now, hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk.